0: Continuing uh, with two uh, s- series' is coterminously, uh, we're on eight, eight essential elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel series. So of the eight elements, we normally list those under Roman numeral one, but to save space, since we've listed them so many dozens of times, I haven't been listing them lately, but they're on previous outlines. Element seven, we call the five steps, the pattern of the five steps of entering Christ's kingdom. Uh, A big concept of Grace Christian Fellowship, and because we think it's a big concept biblically, is Moses was told to make everything according to the pattern. Uh, He's told that in Exodus uh, chapter 20, verses 8 and 9, and verse 40, all through when he's actually constructing the tabernacle, over and over and over again, it says, So Moses made everything exactly as it was shown him on the mountain, just as the Lord showed him, so he did it. And so at the end of Exodus, after chapters of saying over and over and over again that he made this detail and that detail and the other detail exactly as the Lord had showed him, not according to modern humanistic marketing methods, but according to the pattern for the tabernacle, which is, of course, a foreshadowing of the New Testament church. When he got done making it, at the dedication of the tabernacle, like In the days of King Solomon, this happened in both cases, the glory of God filled the tabernacle so much that the priests couldn't even minister and even had to excuse themselves from the tabernacle because the glory of God overwhelmed them. We live in a better covenant. Today we have very little expectations of God's presence and power being among us when we gather But I believe that our expectation should be that as we continue to move towards more biblical patterns in in restoring biblical Christianity, we probably live in a time, in my estimation, where the church is giving the most lip service to following scripture with the actual least following scripture of any time in the history of the church. I think it's actually worse than the Catholic Church before the Reformation by a considerable margin, actually. So um, what God intends to send if scripture is accurate, it is a period of restoration. And uh, hopefully in the upcoming centuries we will see a great deal of that, although some of us will be cheering you on from heaven. So uh, those of you who are younger. So uh, we're also doing the Baptizing the Holy Spirit series because of the five steps that happen at the beginning of the Christian life in the book of Acts over and over again. There's five examples of people receiving Christ getting water baptized, baptizing the Holy Spirit, uh, moving in, beginning to move and speaking in tongues and, and prophesying other gifts of the Spirit, and um, entering into a New Testament way of life that includes both daily spiritual disciplines individually and corporately enjoying the, the Lord together, uh, not just a see-you-on-Sunday kind of Christianity like we have today, but a real community. So that was the New Testament pattern. That's what we have to rebuild And uh, there's no reason to expect that things should be any different today. There's nothing in Scripture that would lead you to believe that the Holy Spirit died with the apostles or anything like that. Things uh, should be the same. And in fact, we we spent some time looking at the activity of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament because we live in a better covenant. To expect less of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is just frankly, biblically ridiculous. And most expectations in Western culture because of the unbelief that came on the culture in the Enlightenment, uh, which is one of the two main sources of cessationist thinking, um, most expectations of the Holy Spirit are very, very, very minuscule. So a lot of work for us to cooperate with God on, and and he intends to do it. Flip over, uh, I didn't intend this to be several weeks, but... uh, This is now the third week that we've been doing the pattern and progression of the the role and activity of the Holy Spirit in the life and the ministry of Jesus. Uh, That somewhat happened because uh, maybe the first week I spent a little too much time uh, reviewing, and the second week I spent too much time on Roman numeral 3b toward the top of the back page, which I'm actually going to spend a little more time on anyway today, even though I ended up spending most of the time of the sermon on that last time. Um, in Acts 10.38, when Peter is speaking to Cornelius and the Gentiles, very important historical event and so many ramifications of that chapter, but Peter sums up the ministry of Jesus with this statement. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. If anyone is anointed with the Holy Spirit and power, they will go about healing all who are oppressed by the devil, if God is with us. Amen. That uh, was the ministry of Jesus Christ. He spent all of John 14, 15, well, 13, 14, 15, and 16 telling us that he was not going to leave us as orphans, that when he fought, went to the Father, he was going to send the Helper, and he was going to continue to do the same things that he had been doing through the church by the Holy Spirit to the ends of the ages. And so we should expect nothing less. And our first and most foremost problem is our expectations. In John three thirty four, it's not on your page, but Jesus... It speaks of Jesus, how God put upon him the Holy Spirit without measure. So Jesus is our pattern in everything. And we looked two weeks ago on how Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Uh, So there was never a time when Jesus was not filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, he wouldn't have done what he did when he was 12 years old in Luke chapter 2, except he was greatly filled with the Holy Spirit. So... Uh, When Jesus presents himself at the baptism of John, at the commencement of his public ministry, and we like the word commencement because uh, these days most people call it graduation, it really should be called commencement, because it's a finishing of something in order to start something. Jesus was done growing up, he was done serving in his father's, his human father's household and so forth, he was now to go about the works of his heavenly father, his real father, and uh, and he was about to, to do that publicly. So when he presents himself to John, the Holy Spirit comes on him and a phrase that's repeated in all the Gospels in several places, Mount of Transfiguration and so forth, God says in some of the Gospels, you are my beloved son, and in others, this is my beloved son. And the reason both are there is not a discrepancy in scripture. It's because God is both saying in saying you He's affirming to Jesus who he is. A great important reason you need a greater release of the Holy Spirit in your life is the Holy Spirit bears witness with us that we are children of God. And as you know, we believe the Holy Spirit comes in your life when you're born again and regenerated. But there are clearly in Scripture subsequent greater releases of the Holy Spirit Uh, that bring us into more gifts and fruits of the Spirit. And this is what the the baptism in the Spirit is all about. And uh, so, um, when he uh, says, uh, this is my beloved son, he's attesting to the multitudes who Jesus is. When he says, you are my beloved son, he's affirming to Jesus who he is. Hey, can you get these keys out of my pocket? Just put them in the corner of the pew. Thank you. So, I'm going to spend just a little bit more time on this. Uh, Last week, the verses that are under Roman numeral 3.b3 were all listed there. However, I didn't really spend any time developing Ephesians 1 5 through 6. And over and over and over again, most Christians today are struggling because they've been raised by performance based parents in performance based churches. And they just can't get a hold of the audacity of grace. And the audacity of grace is even if you were a very, very wicked person, like let's say you were a really goody two-shoes, which, but you did it for all the wrong reasons, which is about as wicked as you can get. Uh, you you know, never stole any cars, you never killed anyone, you never did drugs or anything, but, but you did it, but you were a man-pleaser. Right, You did it because you know it was less trouble and good grades get, get you more boys on the back and so forth. And so God has to work in your life to change your who you are and why you are to being in love with him. Or let's say you are what we think of in modern times as a big sinner. In either case, when God chooses you and draws you to himself by his grace, no one can come unless the Father draws them. When he reveals Christ to you and in you, he does it completely by grace, by his choice, with no basis of who you were in terms of your goodness or so forth. This goes back, this, the old covenant was a covenant of grace. There's a kind of a misconception nowadays. The old covenant was a covenant of law in the New Testament. Oh my God, I hate that stuff. It's called antinomianism. <laughs> In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God says to Israel, I did not choose you or put my favor on you because you were more mighty or more in number than any of the nations. I, God chose uh, to restore Adam and Eve, I believe. He chose Seth. He chose Methuselah and, and Noah and all, all the way through to Abraham by grace. And it was his grace that he chose to, to, yes, if you were born into a Christian family, you might have been in a better atmosphere for grace to reach you. But God can reach people born in terrible atmospheres to be reached and great atmospheres to be reached. But the important thing is that you come to a place where God, you encounter God completely by grace. And in order to do that, you have to go through the wonderful step of seeing what a slime bucket we are. Because most people today have, have various layers of self-righteousness. And that will kill you. That is your enemy. There is nothing good in you that would commend you to the favor of God. Nothing. You're proud, obnoxious, stubborn, rebellious, running from God. You're a rebel. And arrogant at heart. So am I. And God decides to choose the most least likely candidates. In 1 Corinthians 1 26, he says, Consider your calling, brethren. There are not many among you that are mighty, not many noble, not many of good repute. So, the one, one of the most wonderful things God can do is help you understand how deep, deep your sins are because they're way deeper than you think. As my you know everyone knows that Ray Nethery has this nice, fatherly, kindly spirit to my pastor, very different than me. And uh, <laughs> he's not in your grill all the time. And, uh, but he, he loves to say with his fatherly smile, "Cheer up. You're much worse off than you think." <laughs> um, so uh, that is true) uh, there, you know, there's sin nature involved, there's demons involved, there's lust, there's pride, there's wrong motivations, wrong attitudes, wrong addictions, wrong behaviors. You're, in, you're just a slime bucket. Praise God. <laughs> and uh, there's a reason why the Calvinists called it total depravity. Because it's total and depraved. <laughs> That's who we are. Praise the Lord. Let's all gather at the river. All right. Uh, and then he calls you, and he draws you, despite the fact that you're running and kicking, and he tracks you down. And for some of us, you, you know, it took more effort than others, but he gets you, finally gets you and gets his foot on your neck. And you say, I, okay, I surrender. I will to see Jesus. And then you stand up in church and the next Tuesday and say, I've been searching for truth all my life. And the other night, I gave my heart to Jesus, and I accepted Jesus. And he feels so much more accepted now, because he always needed me to accept him. And, uh, and then you're an American Christian. You're ready to get started. And, I'm, and Jesus feels so much better, because you've accepted him. All right, so... I'm I'm on this a little bit because this is the transaction that has to happen at the beginning of your Christian life, or what you got is religion. And I would still submit that it's well over 90% of the people who've walked through our doors are more pre-evangelized than actually evangelized by biblical standards. And I don't say that lightly. I say that out of 40-some years of study, and this is our fourth church we've started. And most of the churches we work with, more than 50% of the people that are in the church have come to Christ through the church. We're not just doing transfer growth here. But lots, what happens over and over and over again is because people pray to sinner's prayer, they think they're converted, but they have no understanding of grace, forgiveness, Repentance, rebellion, the need for the lordship of Christ. They're just self-righteous. And there's no evidence of a new birth in their in their life. There's no vital signs of life. There's no hunger for the word or desire to get holy or desire to proclaim and witness in effective ways. You know, they might have cutesy little Jesus things on their Facebook, but that's far from... Uh, from really wanting to do something about the world's condition. And there's no, there's no spirit of, Lord, I want everything that's in your covenants. I want you to be Lord. I, want you, I don't want you just to come into my life and sit in the back seat and keep your opinions to yourself. I want you to come in, own the car, drive the car, and, and I'll be thankful that I'm getting a ride. And, uh, or if you want to use a house analogy... You know, today we pray the sinner's prayer and we say God. We mean something far less than God when we say that. I'm a sinner, by which we mean, and yeah, I probably made a few mistakes. I mean, there was that time in third grade, uh, you know. But I'm basically a good person. But I do. I probably need a little help from God. But don't help me too much. Just come in, and you you can dust a little. But don't even think about knocking the whole house down and rebuilding it. <laughs> You know, you can just try to dust a little and keep your opinions to a minimum. And when I get in real trouble, which is going to be often with that point of view, uh, I'll cry out, (laughs) I'll cry out, help! And then I'll reassert self-control after the crisis. So I'm hammering this a little bit. Let's go to Ephesians 1, 5 and 6, which is on the page he predestined us to adoption as sons. We did a whole message on adoption, much different than you think it is. It was a way of covenant transference through through the through the generations. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed, oh, I thought you had to earn it, on us in the beloved. Now, the Greek, the the word freely bestowed in the New American Standard, uh, you could look up what it is in the ESV or whatever, is the word caritao. It's used one other place in scripture, and it's used in Luke 128 when Gabriel calls Mary the much favored of the Lord. What Paul is saying is that if you are in Christ today, it doesn't matter that your mother bit you when you're five that you had the most abusive father, that you grew up in a church that was full of uh, condemnation and performance base and everything else, that your family of origin is a mess, uh, that your motivations and attitudes are now being revealed to be really a lot worse than you thought, and then you have much more demonic spirit issues and stuff than you ever thought were real, because most churches don't deal with that, even though Jesus, over 25% of his ministry... Was casting out demons out of religious people who went to synagogue and were God followers in a much more godly culture than ours. So think about that. And uh, so, um, you know, you come to know all this, and and that's when you begin to see you're the much favored of the Lord. Romans 5.20, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. You really have to see the depth of your depravity to begin to understand what a great thing God's doing for you. He's accepted you in Christ. And you are one of the most favored people who's ever been on this planet. And surely my inheritance is a delight to me. He chose you before the foundations of the world. Now, let's get in, we're dealing with Jesus as our prototype and our pattern, so uh, let's get into the wilderness thing. That was last week anyway, but I just, uh, you know, over and over and over again in ministry, we deal with people who may be through wounded spirits, often through pride. Like there's, you know, the the audaciousness of grace is you've got your, you know, God, I call it naked faith. Like God really wants to help you understand you're completely naked in this thing. You know, nakedness was a universal symbol of shame in ancient cultures. you got nothing that you're bringing to the table. Nothing. And when you see that, then you can begin to do what Ephesians 2 says, that in the ages to come we'll praise the unfathomable greatness of his grace. Because the way it works is forever and ever as we worship him, our, you know, that's why the last message of the uh, Grace Von Grace series is our lifelong grace, our lifelong journey. As you journey more and more into grace, which you will do for, forever and ever, you will more and more begin to be like, wow, like, wow, <laughs> like, wow. As you see the beauty of his holiness and you re- begin to realize that, the, you know, the Bible compares us to excrement, to menstrual rags, to afterbirth, (laughs) and uh, a whole lot of other not-so-pleasant subjects that you're not supposed to talk about at church. But you're not (laughs) supposed to talk about, that's kind of an irony, but you're not supposed to talk about biblical things in church. So that's why, like in Philippians 3, the English translations use the word rubbish instead for, you know, for scubalon, which at least the King James uses dung, which back in 1611 was the street term for the, you know, he, he's wanting you to think when you start thinking like Paul lists all his credentials you know the tribe of Benjamin all that's a Pharisee of Pharisees and all that and when he began you know because I'm always having Christians tell me like what a great Christian they were 20 years ago or 40 years ago and I haven't obeyed God in like 35 years but my golly I was on fire for God when I was a teenager and whatever you know there's all kind of craziness but um you know, the bottom line is when Paul lists all his credentials, he says, I count these all as scubalon. Now, that can be accurately translated rubbish in the sense of, you know, when I was in Mexicali, Mexico, and we were witnessing in, at the uh, at the, the city dumps, there were the poorest of the poor live at the dump, and they, when the trucks come in and dump it, they go through the trucks, hoping to find a little bit of orange that's not too rancid to eat, or a little bit of some food or whatever that they can, you know, some of it's just not, not too spoiled that they can eat a little bit of it without getting sick. And, uh, you know, Paul, Paul is saying at least that, but really the Greek word skubalon is the street term that we're not supposed to say in church for feces. That's what God thinks of our self-righteousness. And I hope that you, like when you've stepped in some dog too and then you realize this and you're, you know, you have, when you have to leave the shoes in the garage <laughs> and you realize I'm going to have to get the hose out. and that, That's what God considers our, all of the righteousness that all of us have brought to the table. Mm, 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 that's a, let's go to lunch. but uh, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> All right, so I, I'm, but if you can see that, then you can really receive his amazing love. Why did he choose Sam Chen Poon? Because he wanted to. Kid, uh, you know, kid brought up in a non-Christian home on the streets of Singapore, and uh, some evangelists are out on the streets. And he, why is his heart open to the gospel? And all the guys he was with were like, "That's those Jesus freaks. Let's get out of here." You know? Now, let's get into Jesus' wilderness temptation. We did a whole message on that in uh, the Eight Essential Elements of the Gospel Series, Element 5, letter H. I think in Element 5 was Christology, so we did 30 weeks on that. So when we, after we got to Z, there was like a Z small A, Z small B, Z small C. But uh, um, Emily Weiss hates when I do that stuff. So. Uh, she has to put them all on the, uh, on the podcast. Anyway, I want to just review some of that, and hopefully I'll get hopefully I'll get through this message. It might be another two weeks. I don't know. I never intended this to be a long message, but it's just there's so many important points that we have to have in our foundation. So when Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness, the most important thing to get out of Luke 4 1 and Matthew 4 1 is he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, not by the devil. You hear Christians today, because if there's anything that characterizes evangelical Christianity, it's a God that's less than sovereign and providential. So everyone's like, oh, the devil's been giving me a hard time lately. And I said, the devil's never even heard of you. He's a finite creature with probably a lot more intelligence than human beings. As far as I understand, the satanic angels are more powerful. They're not landlocked and they, they can fly and so forth. And they're probably more intelligent than human beings, as far as I can understand from casting demons out for 43 years now out of probably over a 1,000 people. uh, Demons are not very smart. They're not very powerful. And their intelligence is far lower than a human being, and they tend to be characterized by one type of nature, like lust or anger or whatever. But... um, give you that, no extra charge. But Jesus was not led by the demons into the wilderness to be tested by the demons or by the devil or anybody else. He was led by a providential sovereign God as part of the pattern he was setting for us. When you get a greater release of the Holy Spirit in your life, you should expect the next thing to be a time of wilderness. Because what he wants to do is take you through a process where you come out proclaiming the kingdom of God in the power of the Spirit and no longer leaning on your own power in any way, shape, or form. Because Isaiah 40, verse 28 through 31 says, Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not grow weary or tired, and so forth. We all know that. Then it goes on to say, Though vigorous young men stumble badly, all of us in our culture—the number one section of all Christian bookstores—is self-help books. The self-help guys on TV and stuff, and you can do it, and you can have your best life now. And by golly, you should try harder and you just memorize these five steps. And and uh, it's all—it's all up to you. You know, you received Jesus by grace. Now you get good luck. <laughs> you know, we'll shake hands with you on the way out and. You're on your own after that. You know, God wants to get all of that out of you. Where you're totally dependent on Christ, not at all confident in yourself. None. Zero, nada, nothing. Where you can honestly say, like Paul said in Romans 7, there is no good thing in me. Even while walking in much greater integrity and power and holiness and righteousness, than you ever thought was imaginable because you're living in his resurrection. That's what happens at the end of the wilderness. Now, let's go through seven points about Jesus in the wilderness and hopefully get through that today. Forty days of uh, preparation. 40 is a big number in the, in the Bible, and it's always symbolic. Moses fasted 40 days, Elijah, others... Israel was forty years in the wilderness. On the Mount Olivet discourse, when Jesus is is mirroring uh, what you know, if they remember uh, in the law they had they stood on Mount Ebal and Mount uh, what? I just almost said it. Uh, what's the other name? Mountain they were on? Was it Gearsim? Someone Yeah, Gearsim. Thank you. Uh, and they. The one, they pronounce the curses to one another and the blessings and so forth. What Jesus is doing is, he's on purpose uh, saying, This is the fulfillment of what that was all about. And he's cursing Jerusalem. And he's saying, I sent you, uh, you know, I planted a vineyard. I sent one prophet after another. You killed one, you stoned the other. Finally, I sent my son, and you killed him. And now armies are going to surround you. I'm done. Just before Matthew 24, he cries over Jerusalem, 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 Matthew, you know, uh, 23, 37, and 39. The city who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I've wanted to gather you like a mother hen and so forth, but you would not have it. Then just three chapters earlier, he had said, my house is called a house of prayer. And now he says, behold, your house is left to you desolate. He disowns the temple. He disowns withdraws his glory from it. And when he's, the word desolate is the same word in the Septuagint version that when, when uh, remember when uh, Eli fell over and died because Hophni and Phinehas and the ark had been captured and they come back and report to him that the, and so forth. And then his daughter gives birth and as, as the son is being born, she names him Ichabod. And Jesus is declaring Ichabod over the temple. The glory of God has departed the temple, and Jerusalem. And he says, this generation will not pass away until all of this is fulfilled, and it was fulfilled in 70 A.D. The the war between the Jews and Titus, who who was the son of the emperor and became the emperor uh, of Rome, there's an arch of Titus commemorating his victory over the Jews in 70 A.D. that still stands in Rome. And that's still one of the great monuments that people go to see when they go to Rome. Uh that war started in the middle of 67 A.D., and it took three and a half years, but God destroyed the nation of Israel. And he spent a generation fulfilling when Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my ecclesia, my called-out assembly, in contradistinction to Moses' and the people of God in the earth, to be continued on as the same people as the Old Testament, But it was now more clarified that it was always by grace and faith. It was never by biology. Jesus told in John 8, he said to those who were trusting and being born of Abraham, he said, you're of your father, the devil. And they said, wait a minute, we weren't born of fornication. We have only one father, Abraham. They said, if your father was really Abraham, you would do the deeds of Abraham. But your father is the devil. He's a murderer and a liar from the beginning because Jesus knew they were going to murder him. So all of this is happening in the 40 days in the wilderness. And he he comes out in the power of the Spirit and starts to make disciples, proclaim the kingdom, and compare Luke's version of Luke 4 to the beginning of Jesus' ministry to Matthew's. Very insightful and so forth. Um... Now, in the wilderness, our first, our first father, Adam, failed the test in the garden. Jesus, and the whole, the whole Bible has a theme of garden and wilderness all the way through it, uh, because it has to do with God bringing his sanctuary through the church to the whole earth and filling the whole earth with his glory. And our first father, Adam, in the garden, in his wilderness, uh, failed the test. Jesus, the new and second Adam, succeeds in the wilderness and strikes one of several, uh, you know, starting with his birth, there are several times where he steps on the head of the serpent as prophesied in Genesis three fifteen, and strikes him and crushes him until he crushes him finally in his death, burial, and resurrection. I don't know if you ever killed a snake that you had hit on the head a bunch of times until you finally got him dead. But... Uh, Jesus does that, and one of the great blows is in the wilderness. Now, um, because of Jesus in the wilderness, the original Israel failed in their 40 years in the wilderness, but our captain succeeded in the wilderness, and because of him, not us, he will lead the church through to the total victory in the wilderness. Jesus was revealed as God's true servant, Who was totally obedient to the Father's will? All who came before him, every type of Christ in the Old Testament, failed. Joseph is one of my favorite types of Christ in the Old Testament. I love reading Genesis thirty-seven through fifty, the chapters on Joseph, and especially when he gets to the point where he talk about where he reveals himself to his brothers. If you can read that and not weep, you're probably dead or brain dead or something. But. you should be bawling your eyes out. It's 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 so rich and so uh, intense. And he, um, you know, he, Joseph is a wonderful type of Christ, rejected by his brothers. The bloody the bloody coat and all that is the favorite son of his father. Uh, uh, you know, he overcomes every temptation. He gets rewarded for overcoming the temptress Pot- Potiphar's wife by getting thrown in jail. And <laughs> what a blessing! And. uh and eventually, you know, God raises him up and fulfills his dream and all this stuff. But every type of Christ fell short until Jesus in the wilderness. And Jesus all the way through to his obedience on the cross. In Gethsemane, and you know all that. Okay. So he binds the strong man. We already made the point that it's the first of several victorious strikes. See the scriptures listed there below to to study that out further. Hope you will. It'll reward you greatly. His obedience in the wilderness foreshadows his obedience at his passion at Gethsemane, which was done in a garden. All through the Bible, there's wildernesses and gardens. And in the end, the garden becomes the new city of God. Okay. Okay. Now, he has phileo, phileo uh, he has fi- love for his father as a, as a son, even to the point of death. Whereas we are a little bit more like, you know, Peter, I, I didn't even know the guy, when, th- when things get hot. Uh, lastly, uh, Jesus' obedient refusal to take power by shortcut reveals a completely different kind of king and a completely different kind of messiah. So Acts 2 sermon, as, as John pointed out in his part zero, the very first podcast, that's on our podcast, if you scroll all the way to the beginning of John's section, called Sermon of the Week, uh, is, is the start of John's series called um, Finding Christ in the Old Testament. And he foreshadowed the series, so he called that part zero, because computer geeks, they start, they, uh, they count starting with zeros, <laughs> and uh, the rest of us start with one, he starts with zero, but... Uh, Oh, you computer guys understand why, but um, so he goes through the Acts two sermon and he makes it clear that everyone in Israel was expecting two things they were hoping for their whole life their greatest hope. You know, uh, you're about to get married. Where's Anmesh? And uh, you got great hopes, right? <laughs> and so forth. Everything you ever hoped for, dreamed for, everything was wrapped up, and they thought Emmanuel. The Lord, Yahweh, God with us, was coming. And they thought Messiah or Messiah Christos was coming. They didn't, the expectations in Jesus' day were not that those were going to be the same person. And their paradigms of scripture interpretation were so bad that when he came, they not only missed, didn't know who he was. They fought him and resisted him at every turn. And finally, the same people who cried out, Hosanna, 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 blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, are the same people who five days later shall crucify, crucify, crucify him. So Jesus' obedience in the wilderness begins to show that he's a different kind of king than the kings that we're used to. He's a servant king. He's an obedient king. How many kings are really interested in being obedient to the to the king? <laughs> right? Not 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 typical of kings. If you, you know, study Henry VIII and see what a godly guy he was, um, uh, the model of Christian discipleship. Not. Um, so um, there. So. Uh, I guess, so there's a whole message that goes into this whole thing with Jesus in the wilderness a lot deeper. It's number 5H on the essential elements if you're doing the podcast. Uh, Let's go on, because I I think we had enough time to get into Jesus, our pattern. I'd like to end this part of the series, which I thought was going to be one week and probably be at least four now. But maybe we can rescue it from becoming five weeks. All right, so John 13, 13 through 15 Jesus, after he washes the disciples' feet. Let's get some context to this. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, hopefully everyone in our church knows from a million times that S Y N, S U N in the Greek, uh, S Y M, like symphony, means with or the same as. And optic is for, you know, optometry and so forth. The synoptic gospels see Jesus in a similar light, and all three of them present the Passover Supper. And they focus on Jesus giving us the communion meal because all covenants have celebrations of enactment and celebrations of renewal. And all churches throughout the history of the church until the modern antinomian dispensational kind of nutty stuff began uh, it celebrated the Lord's Supper together at least weekly at the first day of the week, because Jesus rose on the first day of the week, and the first day is the eighth day. It's the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth that came in Christ and have already descended among us. We are the new Jerusalem. Come down out of heaven, and we, uh, we enter the covenant by receiving Christ, We have a covenant ceremony, just like Anvesh and Deanna fell in love, I don't know, in their case, a year or more ago. uh, But they're going to have a covenant ceremony to uh, start their love on a whole different level. And then they're going to renew that covenant, starting with their honeymoon regularly. That's called intimacy. We'll just leave it at that. But uh, anyway, I'm not old enough to think about that stuff. But uh, anyway, so... That's not the Synoptic Gospels give us mostly the, 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 the fact that he gave us the Eucharist, the communion meal, the Lord's Supper. Depending on your Christian tradition, you'll usually use one of those three terms. You should use them all, really. Um, it focuses on his predicting that one would betray him and that Peter would deny him, and he even predicts that Peter will be restored. Now, that's, you know, like, you're going to fall into some deep sin, but don't worry. God's going to rest And Here's what I want you to do when you're restored. (laughs) Like, wow. Okay. It's like he was providential or something. So, uh, John gives us none of that. John, in 13, 14, 15, and 16, gives us Jesus about to go to be with the Father and telling us, my ministry is going to continue the same. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God the Father is the same. God the Holy Spirit is the same. But God is progressing in the revelation of his Son and his new covenant, so there should never be any expectations of something being less. That would be a wrong hermeneutic. So, He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. It's one of, everyone said, you'll hear a lot of people say there's seven I am statements of Jesus. We did uh, in the Essential Elements series, the same series. This is the 100th week on it. So I don't know what week it was, but back in element 5a and b, we looked at the terms logos and its use by Plato and and, uh, um, so forth and uh, other philosophers even Philo and the time of Christ and so forth. Then we looked at John's use of that term, and then we looked at the fact that Jesus says, I am, I am, I am, all over the book of John, over 40 times. Okay, it's not, there's not just seven I am statements. The, the whole point of the book of John is I am. Exodus three fourteen, I am that I am. Jesus is very clear about that. So you call me teacher and Lord, for I am. Because the whole concept is Jesus as God is the prototypical everything. He's the door. He's the vine. Vines are symbolic of some greater reality called Jesus. Doors are symbolic of something greater called Jesus. Marriage is some, symbolic of something greater called Jesus and his church. Uh, a parenthood is something greater that's symbolic of God the Father through God the Son and enter- adopting us into His family. And er- this is what all the I am statements are saying I'm the way, I'm the reality, I'm the door, I'm the resurrection, I'm the life, everything. He is the prototypical everything. He's what Plato was searching for when he talked about the great ideal forms out there. Jesus is saying it wasn't a non-personal, uh, symbolic thing out there. It was a very personal, real trinity. Three persons, one being, and I am, the, I am the son of the Father. I am one of the persons of that trinity. Okay, now, when Jesus washes their feet, just to put it in context... Uh, You know, whether you hate George Bush or Obama or Trump, whichever one you want to hate um, the most uh, (laughs) or dislike the most, let's say. We don't, hopefully you don't hate in a certain sense. Anyway, it'd be like if one of those guys, you know, showed up at Grace Christian Fellowship, you know, Bradbury's the usher. He'd probably be like, oh, let me get you a seat in the second or third row or the first row, maybe. I mean, you're the president or something. And he goes, no, 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 I'm not. No, do you do you have an old bucket and some rags? Yeah, yeah, here's a bucket and a rag. What do you want a bucket and rags for? Do you have a hose and some soap? Okay. and let's say he starts washing our cars. Okay, Jesus kind of did that. He he's saying, the lowliest job you can have is to be the servant at the door who washes the people's feet. And I'm telling you that's what leadership is before I tell you about the Holy Spirit because I'm about to lease the most God-awful, powerful, personal presence that's much bigger and more powerful than atomic bombs into the church, and woe is you if you use it to promote your ministries and, and your kingdoms like televangelists. Jesus said, I'm giving you a pattern, a model, an example, and you are to do as I do. That is what leadership is redefined as forever now. So, um, I put the Greek words there, but the bottom line is, in this whole concept of patterns that we look for and so forth, Jesus is making it very clear that he's the ultimate pattern in all things. And especially when it comes to the presence, presence, person, and ministry of the Holy Spirit, the reason he wants you to have more of the Holy Spirit is because that's the way you have more of him. He wants you to know him and experience him fully. And just as the Father sent the son, so he has sent the church. And therefore, he's equipped the church in exactly the same power. And if it looks like something less than Jesus, then it's still sub-biblical. And it's great to admit we're sub-biblical. Hebrews 4 talks about drawing near to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. The first thing I always do is tell God what I'm not every morning. <laughs> I reposition myself by grace because it's like I'm not a good pastor. I'm not I'm not a I'm not even a nice guy. You know like you know like you know let's trade lives here. And we need the power of the Holy Spirit and that's what God did for Jesus in the wilderness and that's how Jesus lived out of the same leaning on the Holy Spirit as we always do and must do in every moment of his life you know when he when they brought the woman caught in adultery and they thought they had him in an unsolvable conundrum if he says stoner then they'll say turn him into the Romans for, for execution because you, you weren't allowed under Roman law to advocate execution of anyone and uh, if he says don't stoner then they would say see he's a breaker of Moses law they thought they had him and he Instead of reacting and getting, oh, I'm to and doing, you know, like we always do, you know, he just writes in the ground. Why? Because he's listening to the Father by the Holy Spirit, the same as we have to do. And he doesn't say anything, that would be a good discipline for us to get, until the Holy Spirit fully reveals to him what to say. And then he, through a word of wisdom, he totally disarms them. Okay. Great. Whoever is without sin, go ahead, throw the first stone. thats I mean, that's brilliant. I don't think I would have thought of that. Do you think you would have thought of that? I don't think so. All right, next week we're going to look at uh, Jesus as the pattern of ongoing progression. Uh, because there are, unlike, you know, there's this whole idea that you got all the Holy Spirit there was when you were regenerated. We want to be clear. You received the, the person of the Holy Spirit, and you can't divide a person. So in a sense, you received all of the Holy Spirit when you were converted. But there are greater anointings and measures and equippings and releases, and the word baptize means to submerge or immerse. And if, it, if you've received all there is, it should look like First John 2, 6 says, if anyone has, says that he knows him, he ought also to walk in the same manner as he walks. And I thank God that I've cast demons out of people, that we have great testimonies like Leah Gray getting healed of asthma and so forth. But we have a little maybe dampness or a sprinkle of the Holy Spirit going on. And we need to press forward until it's really raining. Because if it doesn't look like Jesus and in the, in the, the church in the book of Acts in terms of the Holy Spirit, then we're just starting to wade in the puddles. And we need to get in the full river And we need to cry out to God to take us there. Amen.